side of the moon. Crumpled drug addicts litter the streets, as do discarded sparklers and American flags from last month's Neil Armstrong Day parade. On the good side of the moon, where the Arabs live, the Europeans and the Chinese, the streets are tidy and neat, perfectly parallel, perpendicular, efficient engineers dress all in white, making careful measurements with metric instruments to ensure the integrity of all right angles, the purity of never intersecting lines, the preservation of an immaculate, utopian geometry. But on the bad side, the American side, there is only disorder, curvature, chaos. One drug addict thinks he is Buzz Aldrin, Another speaks to mission control with a feces-stained woman's shoe. Nervous men in Italian suits approach me, stepping gingerly over the drug addicts, the excrement, the old glories. Obviously in the market for illegal mind-altering substances, Little America's number one export, our number one tourist attraction. But I am not here to make shadowy, illicit transactions with foreigners in the intermittent streetlight. I am here because this is simply where I live. The number one tourist attraction in Little Europe is Le Petit Mort, a roller coaster so exciting its passengers occasionally achieve sexual climax during the final 400-foot drop. Their orgasmic faces captured for posterity by a motion-sensing camera and displayed on large plasma televisions in the Petit Mort gift shop, but I have never ridden it. If I were to walk into Little Europe, I would immediately be asked to leave by the appropriate authorities in any number of foreign languages, none of which I would be even slightly able to understand. My section of Little America is called Neil Town, named of course after Neil Armstrong, the first man to set foot on the moon. It is number one in rapes, murders, and suicides per capita, but our official motto is one giant leap for mankind. Neiltown's most famous landmark, the only serious competitor to mind-altering substances for tourists' yen, euros, and U.S. dollars, is the site of Armstrong's first steps on the lunar surface, barricaded by cordon rope and patrolled by crew-cut-wearing armed guardsmen. The parts of Neiltown not dimpled with historical astronaut boot marks are considerably less protected. My girlfriend, Neiltown born and raised, lost her hand in a drug-related shootout when she was eight years old, an innocent bystander caught in the crossfire, and now, after a post-surgical trip to the scrapyards, has an unwieldy metal claw. Richer families could have afforded a bionic arm, bionic limb recipients often grateful for their amputations, because their new limbs are like their old ones, except with added bonus features, like retractable can openers, Allen wrench sets, rechargeable LED flashlights, but richer families tend not to have children riddled with stimulant-addled gunfire. That privilege is reserved for families like my girlfriends, one mother, six children, bi-weekly, thinly spread welfare checks, and so, metal claw, it was. The nervous Italians draw nearer, their hands jittery, their pupils dilated, 
their heads on swivels, and meanwhile a woman with no teeth propositions me for sex, her speech garbled, certain consonants impossible, price quotes completely unintelligible. I am 17 years old. I am 7. I watch my mother milk Sally Ride, our lone surviving dairy cow, whose milk we heat, stir, wax, and age into moon cheese for wealthy but tasteless space tourists. Moon cheese was the brilliant idea of my mother's great-grandfather, Samuel Thaddeus Houston, a multi-millionaire rancher who made his fortune raising genetically engineered stegosaurus and triceratops for sale to prehistoric-themed fast food chains, Dino Burger, T-Rex Tacos, Mesozoic Gyms. But after leaving San Antonio for the moon with a herd of prize-winning Holsteins, followed by three generations of mismanagement, rampant hoof-and-mouth disease, and overestimated consumer demand for Lunar Colby, Monterey Jack, and Brie, all that remains of Sam Houston's vast terrestrially acquired fortune is the emaciated, erratic Sally Ride, and a small plot of land on the edge of Neeltown, within spitting distance of the ashes of Little America's incinerated amusement park, six flags over the sea of tranquility. My mother grips Sally's udders, demonstrates the proper milking technique, squeeze the teat first with the thumb and forefinger, then with the remaining fingers, she says, but all Sally can manage are a few sad, anticlimactic trickles, ringing hollow in a metal pail. Sometimes she is dry for weeks, other times she produces milk in such quantity that her udders swell like inflated latex gloves, and she wails, slaughterhouse-style, in agony, unless my mother diligently milks her until her violent lactation has passed. The front door chime rings, indicating visitors, and my mother releases Sally's teat and observes herself in the shine of the metal pail. She fixes her hair, wipes away dust from her cheeks, undoes the top three buttons on her shirt, then instructs me to keep Sally company while she heads for the farmhouse, where she hopes to sell some of this week's special, The Eagle Has Limburger. As my mother nears the front porch, greeted by voices universally male and Eastern European, I take Sally's teat in the palm of my hand, press down my thumb and forefinger like my mother said, but nothing happens, not even a trickle. Come on, Sally, come on, girl, I say, but Sally shows no gusto for milk-making. Instead, her concentration strays toward the earth, hovering tauntingly before us in the black void of space. I am 14. I hold, lovingly, the first album by Infinitron Superdroid, the moon's number one robot band. My girlfriend, not yet technically my girlfriend, lies on my bed, intently reading the liner notes, her metal claw glinting in the light from my rocket ship-shaped lamp, as I admire the album art, impressionist patterns formed by cascading ones and zeros, practical binary functionality unknown. She asks me where the band comes from. Right here in Neeltown, I say. The singer was an automated answering machine. The drummer was a combination crossing guard electric dishwasher. I put on the first song, press pound for more options, and we both listen raptly as the singer repeats the mantra, dial one for English, 
prima dos para español, while the crossing guard dishwasher creates a haunting musical accompaniment that can only be described as otherworldly. Wow, says my not yet girlfriend. Now this is moon music, and I know exactly what she means. Back to Friday night, on the bad side of the moon, by the edge of the geodesic dome inside of which Earth's atmosphere is simulated, and the nervous Italians reach me, ask if I have any Green Lantern. Green Lantern is a popular man-made hallucinogenic, available only in Nealtown, and was created when our top lunar scientists stopped solving society's ills via technological breakthroughs, i.e. the geodesic dome, which provides the moon's inhabitants with oxygen, nitrogen, all the necessary trace gases, gravity, and started developing newer and more advanced ways of getting extremely, unbelievably high. My first experience with Green Lantern was at a formal dance, freshman year, when someone slipped it into the fruit punch, possibly during the limbo. The effects of Green Lantern being predominantly synesthetic, I began to see conversations, hear taffeta dresses, taste the middle-aged DJ's music, Elvis with Strawberry, The Beatles' Marzipan, James Brown a slow-roasted leg of lamb. With a populace crippled by nostalgia and wary of novelty, almost all the music on the moon comes from the golden days of the American space age. We have more Elvis impersonators than policemen or doctors. And so at the Neil Armstrong Day formal, I tasted Last Train to Clarksville by the Monkees, I Got You Babe by Sonny and Cher, Crimson and Clover by Tommy James and the Shondells. Wooly Bully was spiced with jalapeno peppers, and I found myself sprinting to the boys' bathroom and gulping down water from the faucet by the gallon. After Wooly Bully ended, switched to something by the Supremes, as near as I could tell from the baseline rumbling through the walls, tasting vaguely of cough medicine. I removed myself from the sink and lay on the linoleum tile as stall-occupying classmates vomited, tripped, screwed, the sounds of lovemaking materializing as the color of drywall, the sounds of puking appearing as a beautiful, full-spectrum rainbow. A friend, high on Green Lantern himself, lay beside me, claiming that the flush of toilets tasted like convenience store jerky, and asked me if I wanted him to blow my mind. I said, I did. He took out a portable music player, outfitted me with headphones, and played Infinitron Superdroid, Your Call is Valuable to Us, off their first album, Fatal Syntax Error, seven minutes of the singer's calm, reassuring, repetitive monotone. Your call is valuable to us. Please hold until a representative is available to take your call. Over an angry percussive explosion that sounded like two armies of washing machines at war. My mind was indeed blown. Before I lay there, rented suit soaked, mouth aflame, higher than a liquid nitrogen-fueled rocket, I was completely unaware that moon music, original, indigenous, un-American space age derived, existed. I had no idea that Neotown was capable of producing anything other than drug addicts, drugs, and bodies wrapped in plastic. I could not even fathom that, 
on this barren rock with its art-starved citizens reaching every which way for transcendence. There was more to lunar entertainment than part-time fry cooks dressed as Elvis and guests that Hermit's Hermit song karaoke and middle-aged DJs pantering to a populace somehow nostalgic for an era more than a century before the first moon child was even born. And when, months later, I made out with my not-yet-technically-girlfriend for the first time, explored her with my tongue, her lips, her teeth, her gums, the inside of her cheeks, possibly her uvula, my first thought was, she tastes exactly like Infinitron Superjoy tasted that first time, high on Green Lantern, surrounded by vomit and rainbows, on the floor of the boys' bathroom at the Neil Armstrong day dance. The nervous Italians, spread around me in a semicircle, again ask do I have any Green Lantern, and I say what I always say, which is, I'm sorry, because I am, all the time, for too many things to mention. The toothless prostitute propositions them, insinuates with her tongue, sways her hips, supplicates with sexy, disconnected vowel sounds, but the drug-seeking Europeans merely shrug their shoulders and mutter apologies in heavily accented English. I'm sorry, it's their turn to say. I have no idea what you're saying. And the prostitute tears at her hair, curses without consonants, buries her head against my shoulder, and weeps. takes our class on a field trip to the edge of the geodesic dome, drones on about lunar topography, basaltic plains, impact craters, and orthocytic highlands. No one listens. Instead, we stare jealously at the private school kids, enjoying their recess outside the dome, playing low-gravity golf, tennis, gaily whizzing around in moon buggies, bounding to and fro in identical academy emblem emblazoned spacesuits that cost more than my mother makes from a year of squeezing Sally Ride's teats. Age 7. Take your child to work day. 
as I complain about having to stick my hand into the goopy cheese curds, which remind me of phlegm mixed with butter. My mother says I should be grateful for having a parent who actually works, as opposed to those of less fortunate children whose parents are either imprisoned or drug-addled or dead. Unswayed, I say I'd rather be at the jail. My friend Haley's dad is in jail, and when she visits him, the prison guards give her lollipops. My mother says little about my own father. There are no pictures, no postcards. He doesn't have a name. One day, a classmate calls me a bastard, and when I ask my mother what a bastard is, she tells me it's someone who is exceptionally good-looking. For several years, I'm under the impression that my classmates think I'm the best-looking boy in school. Age 15. I sit nervously on my bed, fidgeting with a plastic model of the Apollo 11 capsule as my not-yet-girlfriend puts on Infinitron's second album, All Our Representatives Are Currently Busy. I have been meaning for several months to formally ask her out, to bestow an official title on our increasingly frequent and compulsive hormonal escapades, something more dignified than hooking up, getting together, fooling around, but have not yet found the proper moment, proper wording, proper facial expression of tenderness and gravity. Instead, I have always aborted plan A and defaulted to plan B, choking on cafeteria food, lapsing into uncomfortable silence, walking headfirst into walls. Tonight, however, plan A is stronger than ever before. It relies heavily on Infinitron Superdroid lyrics from her favorite song, Your Call Could Not Go Through, which has just started on the music player, and as the song nears the chorus, during which time I plan to fully articulate my feelings in time with the drummer's emotive mechanical clatter, the anticipation builds to a fever pitch, goosebumps forming, Apollo 11 shaking, thoughts racing, approaching the speed of light. Unfortunately, it is also at this time that all the power in our house goes out. For a long time, we just sit there, silent and frozen in the dark. The only light comes from the earth, blue-tinted slivers trickling in through the window pane. My mind continues to race, tries to remember Plan B, subsection 3, in the event of a power outage. While meanwhile, my as-yet-unpropositioned girlfriend breaks the silence by unscrewing her metal claw and dropping it clamorously to the floor. Then, as my thoughts fight against the metallic ringing of the prosthetic, try to latch onto the proper phrase, proper expression, proper turn of the tongue, my not-yet-girlfriend removes her glasses, sets them next to the claw, and pulls me toward her with her one extant hand, whispering urgent intentions as Apollo 11 makes an unscheduled crash landing at the foot of my creaking, suddenly symphonious bed. I decide I want an actual, officially titled girlfriend to make the semantic leap of faith toward monogamy during an Infinitron Superdroid concert at the Zeve, the Warren Zevon Memorial Music Hall. The show is all ages, and the opening act is an Elvis impersonator who plays the trombone, booed off the stage during Don't Be Cruel. 
Inside the Ziv are nearly 700 eager fans, all young, all starry-eyed, all perspiring, compacted together like unmatching puzzle pieces forced into an ill fit, thumping the floor with sneakers, moon boots, stilettos, in anticipation of the arrival of our robot heroes, who we have never seen, except in photos. In promotional materials for the band, the two robots are always shown with their model numbers, special features, and manufacturer-suggested retail prices, as well as the occasional rebate offer, and the majority of us have each product in detail memorized to the letter, Infinitron Superdroid's physical dimensions and approximate shipping weights appearing as graffiti on trash cans and tenement walls all over Nealtown. Prior to appearing at my not-yet-girlfriend's apartment, walking her past the crumpled addicts and nervous Europeans and dentally unsound hookers to the safety of the Zeev, I take a hit of Apollo 13, a pharmacological cousin of Green Lantern, and am convinced, for the entire concert, that I can see into the future. A girl in front of me has a tattoo of John Glenn on the small of her back, and I can foresee her getting Buzz Aldrin on her shoulder and Alan Shepard on her left buttock. A muscular bouncer removes a crowd surfer from the audience, confiscates a video camera, shines a flashlight on a suspected pot smoker, and I can foresee him dying of multiple gunshot wounds to the face. The lights go out. The audience explodes, the concert hall succumbs to a violent, consciousness-enveloping roar, and when my girlfriend-to-be grabs me tightly, trembles with excitement, inundates my applause-stung senses with the aroma of her perfume, her perspiration-soaked body, I can see, in the complete darkness of the Zeev, our entire life together. Starlit strolls at the edge of the geodesic dome, I love you's exchanged amid fogged-up glass, a wedding proposal beneath the blue, mythopoetic earth. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Faces framed in photos on our walls as we hold one another's wrinkled, wizened hands, inseparable right up to our last, faltering days. Infinitron emerges, the lights come on, the instantly recognizable beat of invalid pin number pummels the euphoric audience, and my prophetic, blissful visions crystallize into the disco-lit beauty of my future girlfriend's face, turning toward my own, mouth open, hopelessly radiant, helplessly idolatrous. Now I can die, she says, and again, I know exactly what she means. I am eight. I stand with my mother in the parking lot of the JFK Interplanetary Spaceport, our most prized possessions stuffed into two inadequately sized duffel bags, waiting for the moon cheese purchasing space tourist who has promised to take us with him to the Earth. My mother has long dreamed of leaving the moon, of abandoning the attic-strewn, geodesic dome-covered streets of Neeltown for a better, terrestrial life, but has never had the money. Space travel is prohibitively expensive for all but the select, recession-spared few of moon residents, and so the traffic in and out of JFK is 99% tourists from Earth, media barons from the United States, oil sheiks from Dubai, royalty from Japan, England, Denmark, Liechtenstein, Saudi Arabia, 
The tourist who's promised us two seats aboard Moon Air Flight 23 is from Brazil and is on the board of directors of Dino Burger, the now internationally dispersed prehistoric fast food chain whose genetically engineered stegosaurus meat once came from the ranches of my great-great-grandfather, now comes from large-scale, mechanized, environmentally suspect dinosaur farms in bulldozed Amazonian rainforest. Last night, while sampling my mother's lunar camembert, he promised that soon after we touched down in Cape Canaveral, he'd take me to Sao Paulo and let me ride a Triceratops prior to its slaughter for Dino Burger's popular southern-style Cretaceous sandwich. My mother checks her watch. The tourist is 45 minutes late. In my duffel bag, the items I couldn't abandon the moon without are... Neil Armstrong action figures, an Elvis-style polyester jumpsuit, asteroid candy, some moon rocks, and photos of me, mom, and Sally Ride. In my mother's bag are essential toiletries, an English-to-Portuguese dictionary, a wheel of camembert, and a collection of expensive, revealing outfits purchased at a Little Europe fashion boutique early this morning with the entirety of her savings. Countdown to launch, T-minus 30 minutes, says a pleasantly modulated female voice over a spaceport intercom, and my mother unzips her bag, digs through the essential toiletries, and pulls out a bottle of pills, several of which she stuffs into her mouth and swallows. Meanwhile, I reach into my bag and remove some asteroid candy, strawberry-flavored, my favorite, The cartoon asteroid on the packaging says their amazing strawberry taste is out of this world. Friday night on the bad side of the moon, before venturing to the addict and Italian-infested edge of the geodesic dome, I stop by my girlfriend's apartment, 14C, greeted outside her door by the barks of scary-looking dogs and the insistent sales pitches of drug dealers. I knock on the door three sets of triplets, as is my custom, and hear footsteps, an infant crying, then my girlfriend's mother. She don't want to talk to you no more, she says, muffled by layers of post-gunshot amputation installed steel. Age six, asleep, as per my mother's instructions, in a cot next to Sally in the barn. Some nights, when a space tourist stops by, A special customer, my mother says, I am made to sleep here, away from the farmhouse. My mother says she must conduct business late into the night and is afraid of waking me, the ventilation being so acoustically conductive, the walls of my bedroom being so thin. However, despite her best intentions, my nights in the barn are mostly sleepless, plagued by terrible nightmares, falling into craters, being chased by aliens, suffocating in the vacuum of space. A recurrent one involves asteroids. I always stand, frozen to the ground, screaming as they shatter through the dome, descend toward the farmhouse, cast frightening, increasingly large shadows over everything I know and love. I am eight. My mother and I stand in the parking lot of the JFK spaceport, watch Moon Air Flight 23 rocket to Earth.
without us. I imagine, as I stare at the spaceship, track its trajectory toward the haunting, luminous Earth, looking down on the moon as it miniaturizes, watching my neighborhood recede into the distance, beggars becoming pinpricks, broken down cars becoming child's toys, tenement rooftops with missing shingles becoming solid geometric shapes, everything blurring, shrinking, transforming into rough, hastily scrawled caricature. My mother removes the wheel of camembert from her bag, intended as a gift for Mr. Dinoburger, his favorite, tosses it tearfully into a trash can, and I wonder how long it would take before Neeltown itself disappeared completely, just another tiny pore on the moon's craggy face. A family of newly arrived tourists from Japan exits the spaceport interior, mills around excitedly in the parking lot, and after spotting the iconic, life-size statue of John F. Kennedy in a spacesuit, his left hand stabbing an American flag into the lunar surface, his right hand firing a ray gun, they approach us and indicate they'd like my mother to take their picture. She refuses, as politely as possible, but they hand her their camera anyway, and assemble symmetrically in front of Spaceman Jack, embracing each other in a communal hug and flashing healthy, earthen smiles. My mother, incompetent with non-cheese-based technology, fails to take any photos, says something's wrong as she squints through the viewfinder, presses buttons indiscriminately, but the family, not understanding her, keeps smiling, the father giving an all-American thumbs up, the children imitating JFK's brandishing of the ray gun. Then, the repertoire of stock poses exhausted, the Japanese disassemble, retrieve the unused camera, and thank my mother profusely, punctuating their broken English with exaggerated, reverent bows. After the Japanese leave, pile into a shining rental car and speed toward the parking lot exit, no doubt headed for the towering luxury hotels of Little Europe, Tokyo on the Moon, Lunar Dubai, hotels with built-in roller coasters, underwater floors for scuba divers, menial laborers from Little America kept mostly out of sight as they maintain the spotless, efficient appearances of their respective hospitality paradises. My mother grabs our bags and drags them along the pavement in the tourist's wake, our most prized possessions scraping against the unforgiving lunar terrain. Her expression is one of determination, defiance. She's not going to let me see her cry. We pass uniformed personnel, rows of sparkling rental cars, billboards gushingly advertising Elvis-based musical reviews, Elvis on ice, Elvis in zero gravity, Elvis sings Rogers and Hammerstein. We make it to the exit, reach the mechanized arm of the ticket booth, of little hindrance to us in our carless sojourn from the lot. But, as my mother observes the arm, raising and lowering for pharmaceutical executives, investment bankers, steel magnets, movie stars, something inside her snaps, and she stops, lets go of our bags, and collapses onto the pavement. If only he tried the brie, she sobs, clawing at the ground. If only he tried the feta, the gorgonzola, the cheddar. Who can resist a nice, sharp cheddar? 
uniformed personnel rush to my mother, help her to her feet, ask her if she's in need of assistance, but she just keeps rattling off varieties of cheese, Devonshire, Munster, Kojak, Jarlsberg, thrashing around, foaming at the mouth, scratching with artificial nails. She bites the hand of one of the spaceport employees. Security is radioed, and as the sound of rapidly approaching bootsteps materializes in the distance, I glance back at the sky, searching for Moon Air Flight 23, but it is already gone, undetectable, hurtling invisibly through the void of space toward the beautiful, unreachable blue of the Earth. their third album, Destroy All Humans, which is banned by all major lunar retailers. According to conservative watchdog groups, the Lunar Family Association, Christians on the Moon, Concerned Parents Against Androids, the album's songs have been embedded with binary killbot codes, which, if played near certain digitally controlled appliances, will cause the appliances to malfunction and attempt to murder their human owners. Newspapers across Little America run wild with stories of unexplained vacuum cord strangulations, spontaneous toaster explosions, juice maker decapitations, all attributed to appliance exposure to Infinitron's circuit-corrupting music. Protests are staged, rallies are held, albums are shaken angrily by politicians on television and then burned, and our city council votes unanimously to bar Infinitron from performing anywhere in Neiltown, effectively ending their public career, resulting in riots in the streets, enraged, placard-waving, Infinitron-loving youth assailed with tear gas, rubber bullets, batons, 
same week, there are seven drug-related shootings in my girlfriend's neighborhood, most of which go unreported. I'm 17. At a party, my girlfriend at home, taking care of her five siblings while her mother is temporarily incapacitated by pneumonia, I experiment with Daisy Duke, a new hallucinogenic fresh from the illicit laboratories of the moon's finest scientific minds. While on Daisy Duke, all moral decisions are accompanied by visual apparitions of angels and devils verbally dueling on my shoulders, much like those in cartoons. The angels plead with me to prop up an unconscious girl so she doesn't asphyxiate on her own vomit. The devils encourage me to ignore her and do a keg stand. As the night progresses, led between Bacchanalian impulse and Puritan resolve by pitchforks, wings, halos, pointed tails, I find myself increasingly confused, disoriented, suggestible. One minute I'm a good Samaritan, the next I'm a drooling sodomite. One moment I'm breaking up a fistfight, the next I'm suckering someone in the groin. Seeking relief, I crawl into an empty room, lie on the bed, wait for the effects of Daisy Duke to pass, which would have worked out just dandy, except the empty room turns out not to be empty, instead containing, besides my drug-addled self, a girl, underage, intoxicated, topless, spread-eagled on the opposite side of the mattress. How I discover her is I unwittingly brush against her thigh, and she calls me Murray, a name that is definitely not my own. The angels appear, remind me of the relevant Bible passages, the relevant sections of the penal code, plead with me to help the girl clothe herself, sober up, safely return to her home. They ask me to imagine if this were my sister, my daughter. They actually say, as if this scenario were in any way plausible for the Son of God, what would Jesus do? The angels then remind me of my girlfriend, at home watching her brothers and sisters as her welfare mother burns up in bed with a 104 fever, making sure they're fed, changed, bathed, put to sleep, protected from the insidious forces outside her steel-reinforced door, the forces that took her hand, gave her the metal claw, which I always tell her I find sexy, even though she never believes me. They remind me of how, when we first started to make love, she always removed the claw, embarrassed by it, afraid she would scratch me, impale me, tossing it beneath the bed, banishing it from sight, insisting that the lights go out so I couldn't see her stump, her drug war damaged limb, until, one night, I insisted she keep it on, told her that she could never hurt me, that I trusted her implicitly, that I never felt safer than when I was within her arms, and we made love with the lights on, her claw glinting, gleaming, until we both collapsed from exhaustion, and she cried as I caressed her metal, her skin. They remind me of how she said, as we lay together, postcoital beneath my sheets, that she trusted me too, that she knew I would never cheat her, never deceive her, said for the first time, I love you, eyes watering, 
lips trembling with emotion. And now, in bed with the underage girl, high on Daisy Duke, I was on the precipice of destroying that trust, gutting the foundations of our love for fleeting carnal pleasure. Honestly, how could I even conceive of letting libido win over love, of letting impulse trump fidelity, of letting myself become this sauced-up, half-naked harlot's Murray? But then the angels vanish, the devils appear, and I find myself following their clear, concise, numerically organized instructions down to the most minute detail, undressing, caressing, answering to another name, and the devils cheer me on as the topless girl becomes bottomless and I descend into the chasm of the caustic, chemical night. I am not yet born. A man lies in bed with my mother, treats her naked body as if it were a globe, the equator running across her navel, the prime meridian placed perfectly between her breasts. He shows her where Europe is, Africa, Asia, the Americas. He explains that 70% of her body is water and shows her the Atlantic, running his fingers across her right cheek, her areola, her thigh. Where are you from? asks my mother, goosebumps forming as he caresses the cape of good hope. Where are you taking me? Here, he says, pointing just beneath her right armpit, Cleveland, Ohio, in the United States of America. Is Cleveland nice? asks my mother, clasping his hand over the Mediterranean, her heart. Nice, he says, moving down to South America. Girl, you're gonna think you've died and gone to heaven. Age six, asleep in the barn, as per my mother's request. I wake from a terrible nightmare, asteroids plummeting toward me, sirens futilely wailing, the farm blackened with apocalyptic shadow. I bolt upright, scream violently for my mother, but she doesn't come, unable to hear me from the farmhouse. Instead, for an audience, my terror has only Sally, chirping insects, mice. Normally, when I wake from the nightmares, I grab onto Sally, stroke her coat, try to temper my fears as best I can, not wanting to disturb my mother's late night work, which I am told repeatedly is very important. But this time, the asteroids are so large, the shadows so ominous, so terrifying, that I can't help myself, and before I know it, I'm leaping from the cot and running toward the farmhouse, toward my mother's consoling touch, a stuffed Neil Armstrong cradled in my arms. I find my mother immediately in the dining room with a customer, pots of inoculated, renovated milk scattered across the floor, but the resultant scene is so bizarre, so surreal, that I'm convinced I'm still dreaming and try to pinch myself awake. The customer and my mother do a strange dance, the customer pressed tight against my mother's back, my mother bent over a table, displaying several varieties of fine cheeses, gouda, provolone, Swiss, and I keep pinching. Wake up, I say, as my mother starts to cry. Wake up. When my mother discovers me, her eyes wide, her back arched, 
her mouth open in a silent scream. She explodes, flails her arms, flips the table over, launches fine cheeses like fireworks into the air, and then, extracted from the customer's tango, spins around and shoves him violently to the floor, sending him crashing into the pots of inoculated milk. The customer curses in an unknown language, possibly German, and after rising to his feet, zips his fly, fastens his belt, and flees milk-stained out the door, a trail of smashed gouda left in his wake. I help my mother pick up the cheeses, place them on the platter, arrange them as attractively as possible, still pinching myself the entire time, and my mother, without a word, takes me in her arms and carries me to her bedroom, Neil Armstrong still pressed close to my heart. I never have to sleep in the barn again. Age 17, I hear it first from a friend at school. Infinitron's drummer has been tragically recycled. According to the newspaper, which I cut class early to read, the drummer, back to working as a combination crossing guard dishwasher after the criminalization of destroy all humans, was performing his professional duties outside an inner city elementary school when municipal workers allegedly inadvertently mistook him for curbside collection scrap metal and tossed him into their truck bound fatally for the city recycling plant. A myriad of conspiracy theories immediately form. The mayor was behind it. The retailers were in on it. The concerned parents against androids played a major role. But no charges are pressed. No allegations proven. For weeks, people claim to own toasters comprising 6% of the drummer's recycled body, rebar made of metal melted from his dexterous arms, but they're clearly just opportunists trying to cash in on Infinitron's folkloric legacy. For all we know, his body was simply discarded, junked, now serves no practical use of any kind. When it all goes down, the person I most want to talk to, confide in, listen to Fatal Syntax Error and a bootlegged copy of Destroy All Humans with, is my girlfriend, but she is no longer speaking to me. On a Friday night, I camp outside her apartment, refuse to leave until she hears me out, lets me apologize, lets me promise never to dishonor her under the influence of Green Lantern or Apollo 13 or Daisy Duke again, cross my heart and hope to die, but she never materializes, never answers, hiding, no doubt, in her room, and it is only her mother who talks, speaking exclusively in ultimatums, threatening to call the cops. As I sit outside the door, on the landing, amidst loitering drug dealers, addicts, pimps, prostitutes, I think back to the last night we shared together, before my indiscretion on Daisy Duke, camping at the edge of the dome, listening to Infinitron Superdroid, watching the ghost trails of magnificent shooting stars, the universe, for once, seemingly at peace, in harmony, the earth resplendent through unblemished patches in the dome. Then, the police show up, emergency lights flashing, drug dealers, addicts, and hookers running this way and that, diving into bushes, crawl spaces, trash cans, 
shots ringing out, a protracted gun battle ensuing, and it is in a crawl space below my girlfriend's apartment, shared with a shivering, toothless prostitute who, like me, isn't quite ready to die, that I finally realize that my relationship with my girlfriend is over. I am not yet born, nor is my mother, nor is her mother or her mother's mother. Great-great-grandparents are not even twinkles in someone's eye. So many generations not yet conceived, not yet wished for, not yet even imagined. On the surface of the moon there are no cars, no streets, no cities. There are no prehistoric themed fast food chains, no purveyors of fine cheeses, no oxygen, little nitrogen, few trace gases, no artificial gravity, no dome. Mostly, there are craters. Craters, powdery soil, and rocks. Except, just today, in the sea of tranquility, not a sea in the traditional sense, really just barren plains of basaltic rock and dust, the moon does contain some peculiar visitors. One of them emerges from a strange metallic contraption, which looks rather like a mechanized insect, and descends a ladder to the lunar surface, wearing an awkward, clunky-looking white suit, his left arm proudly emblazoned with a small, American flag. And when he steps on the moon, marks his historical bootmark in the basaltic dust, little does he know that years later, this exact footprint will be blocked off from the public by cordon rope, patrolled by armed guards, milked for millions of dollars in revenues, tourists charged for photo ops, VIP tickets selling for a pretty penny, a nearby gift shop hawking moon footprint postcards, t-shirts, earrings, lozenges, baby formula, condoms, premium Pilsner-style beer. As he steps off the ladder, shifts his weight onto that legendary foot, he is completely unaware that, in the future, a city on the moon will bear his name, an annual parade will be held in his honor, stuffed likenesses of himself will delight and comfort children in every lunar town as they sleep with him in their arms, the children told from birth he is one of the greatest men who has ever lived. He has a message to deliver to the people of his own planet, simple, concise, carefully crafted, but as he says those words, broadcast on color and black-and-white televisions across the great screen-glued swath of his native soil, he is oblivious to the fact that this very planetary satellite on which he stands will one day be home to shopping malls, liquor stores, barber shops, brothels, orgasm-inducing roller coasters, scuba-diving hotels, lawyers, doctors, addicts, thieves, mothers on welfare, tourists in rental cars, youths on hallucinogenic drugs named after superheroes, spaceships, sex symbols, nice parts of town, bad parts of town, places to shop, rest, relax, screw, shoot up, die, be buried, couples falling in love, out of love, honoring and cherishing one another, cheating on each other with devils on their shoulders, Elvis impersonators, Sonny and or Cher, 
an answering machine and dishwasher that briefly, gloriously transcend every manufactured intention of their circuitry. Politicians, pedophiles, politicians who are pedophiles, government money used to protect, serve, enhance, regulate, enforce, kill, squander, mothers against androids, mothers in designer shoes, mothers imprisoned in endless, humiliating cycles of botched escape, such that the escape itself cannot be escaped, bastards born on Neil Armstrong Day, shame accompanied by ticker tape, miracle products that clean floors, whiten teeth, eliminate odors, kill insects, save marriages, prevent acne, prevent sadness, promise eternal life, drugs, drugs that cure cancer, cure gastritis, lower blood pressure, lessen pain, drugs that produce erections, produce side effects, drugs that produce erections as side effects, bought in pharmacies, street corners, alleyways, back rooms, with insurance, handshakes, promises, sex, drugs that exhilarate, illuminate, console, stupefy, that make you believe you're immortal, invincible, Buzz Aldrin, Elvis, God, drugs that make you believe you're not on drugs, not addicted, not passed out on the street corner, not waking up every morning in the part of town where pizza companies won't deliver, and taxis won't drive, and police won't respond unless the amount of blood on the pavement surpasses two liters, sometimes more since the police aren't too good with the metric system, drugs that make you believe that you will never go hungry, and your children will always be safe, and the people you love will always love you, regardless of the terrible things you do when under the influence of the drugs that gave you this belief in the first place. No, the man in the clunky-looking suit knows none of this. Thus, he says the only thing he can say, which is the following, accompanied by static. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.